So let's make a start. Today is the last lecture in the series, and I'm going to talk about one of the last plays Shakespeare wrote, The Winter's Tale. And as I said last week, the question I think this play wants us to ask is, why? Having learned to handle the genres of comedy and of tragedy, why then turn to this story that spans generations and kingdoms and which requires the apparently clumsy intervention of the figure of time itself to smooth over the cracks? Why this revisiting of the tropes of, on the one hand, mistaken jealousy, think Othello, or much ado about nothing, and pastoral hijinks, think as you like it? Why this catalogue of frankly improbable events which culminate in a statue stepping down from its pedestal but which are given quite a boost in the pull the other one stakes by that most famous of stage directions, Exit, pursued by a bear. So one answer to why has been to relegate or to ignore the play. Virtually the same external evidence that The Winter's Tale is Shakespeare's last play, last sole-authored play, exists, as does for The Tempest, being Shakespeare's last sole-authored play. They seem to have been written in the same year. But criticism has widely preferred the melancholic, leave-taking, wise old man stuff of The Tempest in the narrative arc of Shakespeare's development over this bewildering splicing of tragic and comic conventions which seems to allow no such sentimental biographical reading. What does it mean to call The Winter's Tale a late play, and is that an answer to why, why this play? So today I'm going to try and suggest that the intertwined histories of Shakespearean performance and criticism have been trying to answer why The Winter's Tale. And as usual, I'm going to emphasise, as I have been throughout these lectures, that the play provides the question, not the answer, or not the singular answer. The Winter's Tale seems deliberately to stretch our credulity to see just how far we will go. Many critics, since Dowden, writing in the late 19th century, have identified The Winter's Tale among a group of so-called late plays, or romances. This group, this cluster, tends to include The Tempest, Pericles, and Cymbeline. You'll recognise from your work in the medieval period that romance is here a kind of extended fiction concerned with adventures of love or chivalry, or preferably both, satirised by Chaucer in the tale of Sir Topaz, and later by Cervantes in Don Quixote. The first part of Don Quixote appeared in English uh, around the same time as The Winter's Tale, 1612. In late Elizabethan England, Green, Spencer and Sidney all write romances, prose romances. And indeed, Arcadia, Sidney's Arcadia, is a source for Shakespeare on several occasions, most notably perhaps for King Lear, a play which Shakespeare may have been rewriting, the folio text of King Lear, at the time he is writing his late plays, including The Winter's Tale. The main features of romance might be identified as a courtly setting, a loose, epistodic structure, elements of fantasy, improbability, or the supernatural, within a narrative of spectacular achievement and heroism. 
And romance, as those Sydney Spencer Green practitioners might suggest, is a popular genre of the mid-Elizabethan period. And thus I think it is, like pastoral, part of the retro-fashion of the Jacobean era, a consciously nostalgic deployment of a vintage form. The revival of romance can be attributed, I think, to a constellation of circumstances in the Jacobean period. In the theatre, the King's Men's move to the indoor Blackfriars as a winter performance space enabled them to develop special effects and more lavish costuming. These were high, these had become high-status performance attributes, largely because of a kind of trickle-down from mask culture, from court culture, uh, and these highly operatic, highly stylized, very richly costumed and spectacularly uh, lavishly staged masks. The uh, Blackfriars has, um, uh, is an indoor theatre, so it has artificial lighting, it has candlelight, and that's often given as a, uh, a contributing factor to more spectacular kinds of theatre tricks, such as um, the coming to life of Hermione's <coughs> statue. So Blackfriars uh, and the theatre aesthetic uh, which it enables and responds to are more dependent on visual than on verbal gymnastics. We might think of the verbal going to see, a, sorry, going to hear a play being uh, the idea about the, the globe theatres, that where language is the most important thing, hearing is most important. Blackfriars probably uh, gives us a sense that seeing uh, is more important. And the Winter's Tale, the denouement of the Winter's Tale, is one example, and there aren't all that many if you try and think, when one of Shakespeare's plays has a denouement which is predominantly visual, where you have to see it, and seeing it uh, is what makes it happen. Genre fashions are changing too. The Winter's Tale may well owe something to the fashionable genre of tragicomedy, as practised in particular by John Fletcher. Fletcher is Shakespeare's successor with the King's Men and also his collaborator on late plays, uh, including Henry VIII and Two Noble Kinsmen. In the preface to one of his plays, The Faithful Shepherdess, Fletcher defines the genre of tragicomedy. It's a kind of new thing and requires uh, a definition uh, at this point uh, in the first decade of the 17th century. A tragicomedy is not so called in respect of mirth and killing, but in respect it wants deaths, which is enough to make it no tragedy, yet brings some near it, which is enough to make it no comedy which must be a representation of familiar people with such kind of trouble as no life be questioned. I didn't read that very well, let me do it again. A tragic comedy is not so called in respect of mirth and killing, but in respect it wants deaths, which is enough to make it no tragedy, yet brings some near it which is enough to make it no comedy, which must be a representation of familiar people with such kind of trouble as no life be questioned. If you're mamilius, though, about whom more later, or Antigonus, likewise, you might not want to ascribe Winter's Tale to the genre of tragicomedy very easily, as a, a play which uh, wants deaths, uh, makes such kind of trouble as no life be questioned. I think even despite that, even despite the fact that the Winter's Tale pushes uh, that Fletcherian definition of <coughs> tragicomedy, we still might want to see the, the form of this play as a response to fashion and commercial circumstance. We've tended to construct post hoc a Shakespeare whose motivations are loftily aesthetic, 
But what we see time and again in Shakespeare's career is the ability to write precisely and skillfully to the market that response to contemporary city comedies, which I talked about in Measure for Measure, the echoes of domestic tragedy in Macbeth, the engagement with revenge tragedy in Hamlet, and here the incorporation of the characteristics of this new form of tragic comedy. When I discussed Measure for Measure, I suggested that maybe the generic problem critics have identified in that play is a problem only if we see it narrowly in relation to Shakespeare's own earlier comedies, and not a problem if we look laterally at city comedies by Marston, Middleton and Decker. The same may be true here. The Winter's Tale is different from Shakespeare's earlier plays, but perhaps not so different from uh, other plays of the same time. When we look at Shakespeare in isolation from the theatrical culture in which he performs so adeptly, we obscure how to understand his plays. And I suppose then, as comparators with Winter's Tale, I might think about Beaumont and Fletcher's uh, Night of the Burning Pestle as another take on romance, Webster's White Devil, where another woman is on trial for her sexuality, and perhaps uh, as a a kind of uh, romance love story, Fletcher's uh, Monsieur Thomas. But if we do stay within Shakespeare's own canon, the comparison that's most useful is probably that with The Tempest. They're both plays from the same year. They both invoke romance stories which involve great tracts of time and space. Each establishes a human scenario which can only be resolved by the subsequent generation and in a different place. The deposition of Prospero from Milan will take the 12 years before his enemies are brought to his island kingdom. The breach between Laontes and Polixenes can only be healed by the union of the next generation, Florizel and Perdita. Interesting to think, I mean, they're both relationships, kind of homosocial relationships between men, uh, the relationship between Prospero and his brother, uh, and between uh, Leontes and, and his uh, uh, brotherly friend, uh, Polixenes. Uh, it's interesting sort of parallel to think what women are doing uh, in The Winter's Tale. What about Hermione? I'm going to come back to her uh, in a minute, but I've tried to suggest that the breach that happens in The Winter's Tale is not really so much that between Leontes and Hermione, but that between Leontes and Polixenes. That's the thing which the plot is trying to put right. So there are lots of there are, there are those structural similarities, there are those narrative similarities between The Tempest and The Winter's Tale. But there are some really significant differences. In The Tempest, Shakespeare experiments for only the second time in his career. The first is the early play, The Comedy of Errors, and there are lots of interesting ways in which Shakespeare's very last play seemed to flip back to his very first ones. Here he's experimenting then, as in The Comedy of Errors, with the unity of time, place, and action. So if you know anything about... Uh, there's a, a great vogue in the, uh, in the 50s, really, for... Um, essays on the double time scheme in Othello and how many days are Romeo and Juliet married and uh, how long do Shakespeare's plays uh, last. Uh, it, doesn't really, it doesn't really matter how long they last, but they don't last three hours. That's the point, apart from the comedy of errors uh, and the tempest. These are the uh, o- only plays in which the performance time, the, sort of story, the, the, the time that the play takes to uh, unfold before us, is the same as the story time that it covers. So it takes place in, in real time. Uh, if, you're, if, if you're interested in the, in the unities and how the unities work, 24, that's our best example, I think, of the, 
of the unities now. So, um, what, what happens in the Tempest, what, what, what's necessitated by sticking so closely to the unities, is a very lengthy flashback sequence in Act 1, Scene 2. We hear in narrative form from Prospero all the things that we need to know to understand the encounter between the magician and the shipwrecked nobles. It's a very difficult scene to perform because it's, very, uh, it's, full of, it's full of incident. I mean, it's full of described incident and it's very important for what comes. But it's terribly dull because nothing actually happens. Uh, it's, it's all talking, uh, not showing. Theories of narrative call this diegesis. So diegesis is telling. D-I-E-G-E-S-I-S. Diegesis is telling rather than mimesis, showing. So in The Tempest, the dramatic unities are adhered to, but they require a long diegetic section which slows down the action of the play. In The Winter's Tale, we largely get mimesis, not diegesis. We could have had a version of The Winter's Tale which began uh, in Bohemia and told us uh, diegetically everything that had happened up to that point, but that's not what Shakespeare chooses to do here. This technique in The Winter's Tale requires a different stage expedient, the figure of time telling us where we are. That Shakespeare works with both these techniques in the same year at the end of his career might be thought to suggest active experimentation with theatrical form. Having experimented earlier in his writing with issues of character and different ways of suggesting interiority, we discussed some of these at the end of, the last, of last week's lecture on, the, on, uh, on Macbeth, dialogue, soliloquy, doubling, foil, splitting, all ways of trying to show the interior. We might want to see him now experimenting with plot construction, with narrative style, and specifically with how to translate the dilated spatial and temporal axes of romance into drama. Perhaps here's a good time to think about the different connotations of the designation of Winter's Tale as a late play. Cultural lateness, as Gordon McMullen has recently explored in a study which goes well beyond Shakespeare, but the phenomenon of lateness has a range of connotations which cluster around ideas of summation, detachment, philosophising, maybe even world weariness. And Shakespeare's late plays have been particularly suited to and generative of uh, interpretations stressing these aspects. And again, we might see why The Tempest is thought to embody these attributes more properly than The Winter's Tale. Uh, That's quite a good example, I think, of the way critical assumptions create problems with those texts which don't subscribe to their own preconceptions. We are more used to the biographical image of a Shakespeare who is about to step down from active dramatic life in London and planning his retirement to Stratford, the biographical counterpart of the associations of late play. The idea of late is a biographical category, isn't it? Because it's late in relation to Shakespeare's life or Shakespeare's other, uh, other plays. It's not, a generic, it's, it's, not, it's not from the start a generic category or a thematic one. It's a biographical one. Uh, interestingly, we don't use biographical categories uh, elsewhere in thinking about Shakespeare. So the biographical counterpart of the associations of the late play is Shakespeare uh, preparing for retirement. A Shakespeare who has done it all and who, for whom, like Prospero, every third thought shall be my grave. But those critics who have been brave enough to challenge the bardolatry that can only see Shakespeare as a genius have been quick 
uh, to make other associations of lateness with The Winter's Tale, to associate this play with a clapped-out elderly playwright figure who is struggling to keep up with a dynamic cultural medium like the theatre. There are lots of artists, of course, whose first work is their best, and lots of examples of artists who get worse rather than better as they go on. In no particular order and with no room for you to argue, here are a few examples, I would think. Hardy, George Lucas, Take That, Wordsworth, Elvis, John Wayne, possibly also Shakespeare. So the same evidence can support quite a different reading, uh, that lateness, lateness is a kind of summation, lateness is the best thing that you can do, and lateness is a falling off from what you were good at before. And both those cultural myths about lateness as a biographical category, I think, exist uh, in, in culture more widely. The lateness of The Winter's Tale, though, is not the same tonally as that of The Tempest. Our play's mood is more active, and its final scene urges... Uh, a reconnection with theatre and its powers of transformative illusion. Paulina, who acts as the director uh, of the play, particularly in this final scene, tells Leontes, awake your faith. It's an attitude to the magic of theatre, which is very different from Prospero's epilogue, pleading to be set free from a stage which has taken on the penal qualities of that pine in which Sycorax imprisoned Ariel. Release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. So we might think that the experimental form of The Winter's Tale doesn't entirely corroborate a view of its writer as weary with the theatre and ready to hang up his quill. In previous plays, and some of these we've looked at already in this series, Shakespeare has experimented with the relation between tragedy and comedy. This is not in itself new uh, in the late plays. It may be a more extreme version uh, of uh, generic experimentation, but it isn't, it, it, it isn't a, a qualitative one. When I was talking about Othello and about Measure for Measure, I've discussed some of the ways that genre theory has helped us to understand the structural and tonal expectations of comedy and tragedy as genres. What we've seen previously is that generic expectation has tended to take the form either of an uneasily tragic tone in comedy, Claudio's speech on death in the middle of Measure for Measure, or an uneasily comic tone in tragedy, we might think of all those puns on hands in that strange peon to the handectomy, Titus Andronicus. That's very good. I hope that's been recorded, that fantastic laugh. <laughs> Here, I think in The Winter's Tale, the experimentation is something different. A radical swerving away from tragedy into comedy, which is managed not just by the intervention of the figure of time, but by a range of shifting registers in the middle of the play. If Acts 1 to 3 of The Winter's Tale give us a condensed version of tragedies anagnorisis or recognition and peripatia or reversal, Leontes continues stubbornly in his conviction of Hermione's infidelity, even defying Apollo's oracle, until the news of the death of, the son, of, of his son and his wife brings about that re, uh, re, uh, reversal. So we go through uh, to, to recognition uh, and reversal in a very condensed way in Act 1 to 3. Prithee, bring me the dead bodies of my queen and son. One grave shall be for both. Upon them shall the causes of their death appear unto our shame perpetual. 
So we might think at the end of Act 3, we've come so far so tragic. We have at least in outline a man of high status brought to the destruction of his own family due to his own mistake, making Leontes a tragic patriarch like King Lear or Othello. But we also have at least an hour to go. If the Sicilian portion of the Winter's Tale is a tragedy, it's too quick. Rather, as Leontes' rage blows up from nowhere, it is too much, too soon, too hot, too hot. So, unlike in these previous plays, Lear and Othello, tragedy is not the end point of the play. In refusing to close the play on the sorrowful and bereft tragic figure, the play prompts us to consider what comes next. What really does happen when you've screwed up royally, lost everything, and rather than dying majestically like Othello dying upon a kiss, you have to face that knowledge every day. And in doing that, the play, one might think, offers us a potentially more optimistic structure, not the inevitable and unavoidable spiral of tragedy, but a sort of philosophy of the second chance. Tears, vows Leontes, shall be my recreation. And that word recreation has in it very prominently, of course, recreation. So whereas tears are destructive in tragedy, uh, or metaphorically so, here they're they're thought to be uh, regenerative, recreative. We sometimes say about Shakespeare's tragic characters, probably trying to cheer ourselves up about their terrible situation, that they have learned something about themselves, or they have grown in humanity, that Lear recognises he should not have treated Cordelia as he did, or he should have been a better king to all those poor naked wretches. But the ameliorative comfort of this is a bit hollow, given that the reward of this personal development is to die. What's the point, we might wonder? in learning through experience, if you don't get the chance to try again and do better next time. We might think here of Beckett, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. But Leontes does get a second chance in The Winter's Tale. Like the biblical Job, he endures his losses, and he has at least some of them restored to him, but not yet. I want to think, as the lecture goes on, about whether that very... uh, positive, optimistic, uh, even, you might say, sentimental view of The Winter's Tale as the philosophy of the second chance, whether that's actually borne out uh, in the way the play works, particularly on the stage. But after Leontes realises what he has done at the end of Act 3, the play shifts a number of gears. We need to move place, tone, genre and time. So the middle of the play sees a number of uh, transitional scenes. The first is the shifting of place. Antigonus brings Perdita, the baby, in a storm to a beach and leaves her there. But the second, I think, shifts tone, that most famous stage direction uh, in all of Shakespeare, exit pursued by a bear. You would not really believe how much ink has been spilt on the question of whether, in 1611, this could have been a real bear. (laughs) And the answer is, we don't know. We do know that bears were high-status fashion accessories in Jacobean London after two polar bear cubs were brought back from a North Atlantic expedition and given to the king. They were the sort of equivalent of Bo, that dog in the White House that everyone was mad about after Obama's election. 
White bears make an appearance in the mask of Oberon, one of the masks before King James. And we do know that the theatre district of early modern London shared space and clients with bear baiting. The Hope Theatre, which is built uh, around this time, is built purpose-built as a, a... uh, alternative venue for theatre on some days and bear baiting uh, on others. So it's not impossible uh, that, the, uh, the, that a real bear might have been used. But it would have been dangerous and unpredictable to have a bear on stage. And it seems more likely that what we would have got is some representation of a bear. Now, if we think about more recent stage uh, productions, representations have been, uh, of the bear have been anything from a man in a bear suit to a monster made of sheets of paper, if you've seen the most recent RSC uh, production, to a shadow projection of a large claw. But one thing they tend to share is that they provoke laughter. They are funny. The purpose of the stage direction seems to be to shift tone. Rather, unfortunately, since it registered the, the demise of Antigonus, who is the last victim of a tragedy which is now wrestling its way into comedy. The baby is then found by two rustic types, cue, of course, funny accents, more hilarity, and colourful prose, all of which register hourly the shift from the high tragic poetry of Sicily. Instead of death, the the stuff of tragedy, we have rebirth and regeneration, comedy. In case we're not getting the generic point, the shepherd points it out for us. Thou metst with things dying, I with things newborn. It's pretty clear, isn't it? The baby is saved like a fairy tale, like Moses in the rushes, with all that that promises for the future. When the shepherd's son describes the bear eating Antigonus in humorous terms... Uh, interestingly we've moved away from knowing Antigonus and sort of caring about him and come to objectify him we've moved our perspective to the perspective of Bohemia I think how the poor souls roared and the sea mocked them and how the poor gentleman roared and the bear mocked him the transformation is complete we've moved place, genre and tone and in a last shift we, we move time in bringing on the figure of time to indicate that 16 years has passed The play does something like the equivalent of a film flashing up 16 years later. It moves over a chronological disjunction in the play. It makes clear that what's interesting to the plot is not the girlhood of the baby nor her life among her adopted family. We renew our interest in her just as we took up our interest in Miranda, for example, or we take our interest in uh, Marina in Pericles, Uh, we we renew our interest in Perdita just as as she's on the brink of adulthood when a new young couple come into the courtship which is typical of Shakespeare's comedies. The second half of the play introduces an entirely new cast although of course they're almost certainly the same actors doubling in new roles which can help us make some suggestive connections between the two halves of the play. Does the same actor play Mamilius and Perdita for example? or Mamilius and Florizel? Is Leontes somewhere in Bohemia playing a different role? What if Hermione returns as Perdita? Judy Dench did this uh, famously in a uh, 60s production. The scene in Bohemia, in Act 4, is a lengthy one, which seems to have as its main purpose to be long, to <laughs> insulate the tragic first part, to put some distance between us and the accelerated trauma of the Sicilian scenes. The genre here is festive. The stress is on fruitfulness and comic plenty, 
rather than the sad tale best for winter in Leontes' emotionally icy court. But here too, perhaps, genre is uncertain. When King Polixenes hears of his son's entanglement with an apparently unworthy woman, he is misreading the genre. He obviously doesn't know that in a romance, princes who fall in love with shepherdesses always discover that they are actually lost or disguised princesses after all. And here, Polixenes is like those hapless suitors in The Merchant of Venice who must be the only people in the world not to know that if you're in a fairy tale, you never pick the gold or silver caskets. Like most of Shakespeare's plays, and uh, like the plays I've been talking about previously in this series, The Winter's Tale follows a pre-existing source. And here the source is a 20-year-old prose romance by Robert Greene. The romance is called Pandosto, or The Triumph of Time, first published in 1588. Pandosto is the Leontes figure, uh, Beleria, Hermione, Fornia, Perdita, Dorastus. Florizel and Aegisthus Polixenes. I say that just so you can see that the same characters that Shakespeare uses uh, are, are very strongly characterised as part of Green's story. What's very different, though, in what Shakespeare does to Green is the ending of the story. In Green's Pandosto, I'm going to talk about the, uh, the, the figures in this prose romance by using the names of Shakespeare's characters, even though, of course, they've got their own names. But in Green's Pandosto, when Florizel and Perdita arrive at Leontes' court, the king, contrary to his aged years, began to be somewhat tickled with the beauty of Perdita. His frantic affection for her grows, despite his efforts to deny it. Perdita rejects uh, his advances, but Leontes is so keen on her that he has Florizel imprisoned uh, in... Uh, uh, and, the, and Green says that Leontes is broiling at the heat of unlawful lust. Hearing of this, Polixenes commands Leontes to kill Perdita and to return his son to him. Leontes wants to be reconciled to Polixenes and he thinks this is, this is how it's going to work, that he will kill, uh, kill Perdita. Uh, but then the, um, the fact that Perdita is Leontes' daughter is, is revealed and Leontes recognises her as his daughter. All seems to be reconciled, but Leontes cannot enter into the rejoicing and the marriage celebrations, and Green's story ends in this way, calling to mind how first he betrayed his friend Polixenes, how his jealousy was the cause of Hermione's death, that contrary to the law of nature he had lusted after his own daughter. Moved with these desperate thoughts, he fell into a melancholy fit, and to close up the comedy with a tragical stratagem, he slew himself. So, the story that Shakespeare takes for The Winter's Tale has uh, a Leontes who is so burdened with grief, particularly for his incestuous desire for his own daughter, but also for falling out with Plixenes in the first place and killing off Hermione, uh, that, he, that he ends in suicide. It's a tragedy. Green's phrasing there is interesting. Pa uh, Leontes' death turns a comedy into a tragedy, to close up the comedy with a tragical stratagem. He slew himself. By keeping his Leontes alive at the end, and by miraculously returning Hermione to him, and by evading the issue of Leontes' incestuous desire for the unrecognised Perdita, Shakespeare works with the tragedy of the opening acts and forces them into an apparently comic redemption for both generations. But if we look a little bit more closely at what's going on, we might see the faint but undeniable outline of those darker forces and the tragic 
story that, the, that, that this narrative is before Shakespeare gets hold of it. Shakespeare's late plays are all preoccupied with the relationship between fathers and adult or near-adult daughters, and it's arguable that all these relationships bear traces of incestuous <laughs> desire. Prospero and Miranda in The Tempest um, sees extreme paternal aggression to the threats of her chastity uh, and uh, a kind of preoccupation with um, Miranda's chastity, which... Uh, <coughs> Which, which we might want to interpret uh, in the light of the other plays uh, as suppressed, uh, suppressedly incestuous. Uh, in Cymbeline, uh, the, the wicked stepmother, uh, who doesn't have a name uh, in the play, the wicked queen, is jealous of the king's daughter, uh, Inogen, uh, and suspects that this is a more, more uh, prominent relationship for Cymbeline than, than his marriage. But most prominently in these late plays, we get Pericles and Marina, Pericles begins with an explicit scene of father-daughter incest at Antioch. Presenting himself as a suitor to the king's daughter, she doesn't have a name either, Pericles has to answer a riddle in order to win her hand. This is the riddle. I am no viper, yet I feed on mother's flesh which did me breed. I sought a husband in which labour, I found that kindness in a father. He's father, son, and husband mild, I, mother, wife, and yet his child. How this may be, and yet in two, as you will live, resolve it you. It's not rocket science, but Pericles' <laughs> fear for his own life means he can neither confront the incest nor refuse to answer the riddle. Instead, Pericles escapes, and he is condemned to a long series of sea voyages, at the end of which he is reunited with his own lost daughter, Marina, who is another sexual anomaly, a chaste prostitute who has brought one of her brothel's clients, the governor of Mytilene, to repent his ways and to propose marriage to her. So we already know that Shakespeare's long interest in father-daughter relationships, which we also see in earlier plays like As You Like It or King Lear, reaches a particular intensity in these late plays. But we also know that if we compare it with Green's Pandosto, in The Winter's Tale, Shakespeare has chosen to omit this dynamic between Laontes and Perdita, or at least he has structured the play to suppress, or perhaps we might say to sublimate, this desire. But we can still see that Laontes' first encounter with Perdita is marked by the incest taboo. Laontes uh, is full of praise for the young bride's beauty, uh, when Florizel says his father will grant Leontes anything, the king's hypothetical wish is to have Perdita for himself. And this earns from Paulina the, re the, the remonstrance, your eye hath too much youth in it. After that point in the Winter's Tale, there is no further discussion between father and daughter. It's almost as if the play is too frightened to have them on stage again together in case the incestuous desires from Pandosto break out into the Winter's Tale. The scene in which Leontes recognises Perdita as his daughter is recounted, not shown. And that's interesting in a play which, as I've already said, is so structured around mimesis, showing. This is an interesting cutaway to diegesis, telling. And most extraordinarily of all, and this doesn't happen in the source, Hermione is revealed to be alive. She returns to claim Leontes, to mop up that youth in his eyes, to divert sexual desire back into marriage and away from incest. Perhaps Hermione then is brought back to life precisely to interrupt Green's incest narrative. 
And it's interesting to think about that, in, given that The Winter's Tale is probably the only play by Shakespeare which has anything approaching a narrative twist at the end. It's the only play for which we could give a plot spoiler. Shakespeare's plays are always dependent on dramatic irony and on the way that we know more than characters on the stage. So we're always in a position of, uh, of, of masterly control over events in the play. We know who's who, who's disguised. We know Iago doesn't, uh, is not honest, as everybody else thinks. We know that the answer to the confusions in Twelfth Night is that Sebastian is also there. Uh, we know that uh, the Merry Wives are only pretending to trick their husbands and all those things. <coughs> So there's no reason why, at the end of Shakespeare's career, we should mistrust uh, the evidence that the play gives us. Paulina announces in Act 3, Scene 2, the queen, the queen, the sweetest, dearest creatures dead. Leontes exits that scene, prithee bring me to the dead bodies of my queen and son. Nothing in the lines and nothing in uh, what's happening at this point in the play suggests that this is an impossibility, since the queen is not really dead. You could, in performance, have Paulina winking to the audience, or she could overplay these quite histrionic lines uh, in the scene. I mean, they may look histrionic, but when people die in Shakespeare, people usually are histrionic, uh, so it's hard to say that it's an index of insincerity. Um, None of these things, though, is scripted. And when Antigonus sees the ghost of Hermione in a dream, that seems further to corroborate the fact that she's dead, People in Shakespeare's plays see ghosts of dead people, not living people, in their dreams. So dramatic irony is suspended in The Winter's Tale, really important uh, structural point about our relation to the play. The play tells us Hermione is dead, so Hermione is dead. And it's only after Perdita's reappearance at court that we hear anything at all to prepare us for Hermione's revival. One of the gentlemen, you'll remember, is discussing the reunion of the father and daughter and mentions that Paulina is about to reveal a statue of Hermione. I thought she had some great matter there in hand, for she hath privately twice or thrice a day, ever since the death of Hermione, visited that removed house. She hath privately twice or thrice a day, ever since the death of Hermione, visited that removed house. It's a rather late indication of what's to come. There are probably about... 15 minutes before Hermione is going to step down from that pedestal and we suddenly get this hint, oh, maybe she isn't dead uh, after all. Uh, And one of the ways the play, uh, one of the strangenesses, I think, about the end of the play is that two different endings are jostling for narrative superiority. One ending is the comic ending, which is the marriage between Florizel and Perdita, the marriage which is going to resolve the problems of the past and rewrite the breaches uh, of history. And the other is the return of Hermione. So maybe the strangeness and the unexpectedness of Hermione's return, unlike her still-dead counterpart in Green's Pandosto, should be seen as part of Shakespeare's wrestling with his source and trying to banish that incestuous element from his comic ending. The hasty way in which uh, Hermione's survival is reintroduced as a possibility might give us a glimpse of Shakespeare at work, working with his sources, but working rather effortly to shape his material. Perhaps Shakespeare had not always intended that Hermione would return, but he needs to quash this incest story, and he does it by providing an alternative mate for Leontes. Now, productions of the play before, say, the last 20 or so years have tended to lend their support to this hasty, belated attempt to wrest the play into a comic ending, rather as we saw in performances of Measure for Measure. So directors have uh, 
provided an interpretation of the winter's tale which has said yes it does end happily yes uh, these uh, amazing events do come together to bring uh, a kind of redemption at the end but more recently directors of the winter's tale have been preoccupied with the lost mamilius never mentioned in the text of the play in the final scene but often made much of uh, in the mind of the audience I'm going to give you one example of a, uh, of a production which does that, which uh, compromises the ending, which stresses what's not resolved, uh, which resists uh, that sentimental view of the second chance or the redemptive uh, version of The Winter's Tale that I was talking about earlier. This is Lynn Gardner writing in The Guardian, and she's talking about a Declan uh, Donnellan uh, production. It's quite a long quotation, but I think, it's, uh, I think it works to explain what I'm talking about. What normally happens in the winter's tale, she says, is that Leontes, the willful king, driven to the brink of despair by his lunatic conviction of his wife's infidelity, then kisses the statue of his apparently dead spouse. Suddenly she moves, coming to life in his arms. It's a moment of total redemption and grace as sanity and happiness are restored in a single act of love. At least that's how it's generally played. But there are no such happy ever afters in Declan Donnellan's brave, bitter conclusion. Hermione is indeed restored to life. The lost Perdita is found. But rather than being transformed by the glow of love and forgiveness, the family trio are shown isolated and frozen in time. Leontes and Hermione are old and broken, Perdita like a supplicant begging at their feet. What is lost can never be regained. Once you are out of Eden... The gates are locked and barred against you forever. To make the point even more strongly, Donnellan has the young dead prince Mamilius, his life squandered to his father's jealousy, suddenly appear from among the courtiers. He moves towards his parents, a small spirit eventually ushered gently but firmly away by the figure of time herself. He is gone but will remain forever as the ghost between his parents. If most good productions of A Winter's Tale leave you in tears, this one leaves you choking. One might, of course, argue that this kind of theatrical experience is the ultimate answer to why. And certainly the recent stage history of the play has discovered the way in which it can and does work emotionally, even while or because it strains our expectations and our credulity. I wanted to end this series of lectures with an example from performance to make one last methodological point. The play text always prompts and doesn't answer questions. Critics, and more visibly, directors, take those questions and answer them. They answer them provisionally, contingently, and partially, but they answer them in ways that can clarify what the options are and why the questions are important. So my last request in these lectures is that you try to attend to performance, hypothetically, as you read plays, but also practically, by following reviews, websites, and the many clips there are of film and theatre versions now available online. Thank you.